When I um, worked for uh, a church, one of the wonderful dear ladies uh, called Gladys uh, died. Uh, Gladys was a beautiful and radiant saint uh, who loved Jesus, encouraged me again and again, and had a wonderfully infectious laugh. She used to make me uh, lovely biscuits when I went to visit her. She'd always worry if I'd find a car park space outside her house. And she was always keen to read the Bible and talk about Jesus together. I remember her Thanksgiving service vividly. It was a baking hot day. The church was packed. And her family, obviously, were desperately sad to say goodbye. They dearly loved Gladys, their mother, grandmother, aunt, sister. Many holy tears were shed that day. And yet, Gladys' family also showed deep, abiding, and almost tangible hope. They knew with a cast-iron certainty where Gladys was with her beautiful saviour. They knew without a shadow of a doubt that death would not have the final word over them or over Gladys due to their faith in Jesus. They could sing in the face of death. And we did that day as we celebrated Jesus' defeat of death in his own resurrection and in the hope of our resurrection to come in him. And I think we all left that Thanksgiving service a little bit more committed to living life well, living life fully in light of eternity than we were at the beginning. So Gallus' family had learnt the lessons of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Lessons about facing death and living life. Lessons that are important for us today. Because the sad truth is you don't need to live for long before you do encounter death. All around us we see the reality of mortality. People die. The funeral business is booming. We have to say goodbye. How do we cope with that? 1 Thessalonians 4 has answers for us. We can learn to face death with hope. In Jesus. But we also need to learn to live life well until that comes. Time is short. There is much to take up our attention. We need to make tricky decisions how we should live. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5 has answers for us. We can let our hope in Jesus shape the way we live now to please God in ways that make sense of what our future holds. Lessons about living life. And facing death. Lessons that we need to hear, friends. But also lessons that we can share with others. Look down to verse 18 of chapter 4, where Paul sums up how these lessons are meant to impact us. Therefore, he says, chapter 4, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Or chapter 5, verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. So friends, today, as we learn these lessons about facing death and living life, we are to share them with others. Uh, These aren't private lessons, lessons that take place behind closed doors, lessons to keep to ourselves. These are lessons to remind others in this church of when they've forgotten them. 
Lessons to encourage each other in when we feel like we're giving up on them. Lessons to press home to the hearts of one another so that here at KCC we will be built up and strengthened as we do that. In the hope that as we do that to others, others will do that in turn to us when we need it. I think that's an exciting vision. And I hope you do too. So can I encourage us, let's lean in to these lessons Paul has for us this afternoon, for our sake, but also for the good of others in the church. Lessons about facing death and living life. First big lesson for us today is we grieve with hope when Christians die because Jesus has risen and is returning. We grieve with hope when Christians die because Jesus has risen and is returning. That's the burden of verses 13 to 18 in chapter 4. Now we've got to think our way into the situation a little bit here. It seems that some in the church in Thessalonica uh, had died since Paul had planted the church. Time had moved on and that had happened. Paul speaks about in verse 13 as people who sleep in death. And this experience had deeply upset the church and was causing anxiety. They were concerned about the spiritual state of their Christian friends and family who had died before Jesus had come back. Would those dead Christians somehow be missing out in some way? Would would they be lost? Would they be disadvantaged in some way when Jesus returned? Now, let's be honest, for some of us, those concerns sound quite strange. So can I encourage us to kind of hang in there? I hope we'll see this is relevant as we go along. But actually, maybe for others of us, uh, these things sound a bit closer to home. We've lost Christian friends and family these past months. Can I encourage you, if that's you, please do try and track with this, even though I know this might be painful to open up those issues again. So Paul knew the church, verse 13, was uninformed in this area. And so he writes to them to help them. And his heart in writing is that, so in the face of death, verse 13, they do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That's Paul's intention as he writes to this church. He's not saying there's no place for grief at all when believers die. We wouldn't be human if we didn't grieve, would we? But Paul is saying that he wants these believers to grieve with hope. To grieve Christianly, if I can put it that way, if you'll indulge me. But that is hard. Grief is like a tidal wave that sweeps us away, consuming us and turning everything to darkness. I know many of you know that far more than I do. So we need help to grieve with hope when Christians die. And to help us do that, Paul points us to Jesus risen and Jesus returning. Paul says we can grieve with hope because Jesus is risen. Listen to the logic. Come back with me to verse 14. Paul doesn't want us to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For, he says, here's the reason, the grounds, the logic for that assumption. For, we believe something. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. How does that work? Well, the belief that Jesus died and rose again is, amongst many things, a belief that death is not ultimate. That it does not have supreme power and authority. That there is one who has faced it head on, experiencing its sting, but who has risen, who has crushed death under his feet and is alive again, never to die 
a second time. And Christians have committed their destinies, their futures to this Jesus. And so if he has risen again and now enjoys life beyond death, then it is possible for Christians to experience that too. See, Jesus, the one in whom we hope, is the risen King, the living Lord, the triumphant conqueror. And he will raise all who follow him after death too. And grieve with hope when Christians die because Jesus is risen. But secondly, Paul also says we can grieve with hope because Jesus is returning. Again, come back to me with verse 14. We believe Jesus died and rose again and... We also believe, Paul says, verse 14, that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, Christians who die fall asleep in him, Paul says, or or through him. The picture is that even in death, Christians are not separated from Jesus. They're not isolated from him, but they're carried safely beyond death to the other side through him, in union with him. So they are with Jesus now and will be brought back with Jesus then on the great last day at the end of all things. The Christians who die are not lost. They're not abandoned. They're not away from Jesus. No, they're with him and will be brought back with him. That's what Paul says. And when Jesus returns, Christians who've died will be the first in the queue to receive their resurrection bodies. Did you spot that? Look at verse 15. Paul's clear, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, verse 15. In fact, he explains what he means by that, verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. We all suffer to different degrees uh, with FOMO, uh, the fear of missing out. We all have that niggling fear that someone, somewhere, is living a better life than us, or enjoying better health than us, or getting better stuff than us. Here's the ultimate antidote to FOMO about the fate of dead Christians. Paul says the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be top of the queue to get their resurrection bodies when Jesus comes back. This is verse 15, according to the Lord's word, Paul says. See, when those momentous events of Jesus' return unfold, when the Lord himself comes, as Paul says, When he commands the dead to rise, when the trumpet sounds and the archangel acclaims his glorious return, Christians who've died will get their resurrection bodies first, Paul says. And yet the best is not yet exhausted, because on that great day, Paul says we will be reunited again to be with Jesus forever. Look at verse 17. We, who are still alive will be caught up together with them, that is, the dead in Christ who have risen first, to meet uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We will be gathered together to meet King Jesus, to welcome him on his glorious, triumphant return, and then to meet him in the air, and then to accompany him back to this earth to reign. We will be united to Jesus, and reunited with Christians who've died. So much so, verse 17, we will be with the Lord forever. This is our destiny. Although death severs relationships with Christians who've died, and although it is deeply painful, 
Please be encouraged, it is only a temporary disruption. See, when Jesus comes, we'll be reunited with Christians who've died. And we'll be with them, with Jesus, forever. We can grieve with hope when Christians die because Jesus is risen. And Jesus is returning. Friends, this afternoon, if we want to grieve with hope when Christians die, we must believe that Jesus is risen and returning. So do you believe, verse 14, Jesus died and rose again? Maybe you're here this afternoon, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you think this belief is simply impossible, unscientific, somehow. Well, you're in good company, actually. Many have tried to disprove Jesus' resurrection over the years, sometimes with surprising results. The man on the screen is a man called Frank Morrison. He was a Brummie, born and raised not too far from here. In the 1920s, um, he was an advertising executive, and he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was uh, an atheist, uh, a thinking man, and in his line of work, uh, used to exposing cover-ups. And he was convinced that that this is what the resurrection of Jesus was. And yet, as Frank examined the historical evidence, he found his scepticism changing. So much so, in the end, he became convinced that Jesus really had risen from the dead. He became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone in Defense of the Resurrection. And you can still buy it and read it today. I read it last year. It's a classic. See, it's possible to have a brain and believe in the resurrection. So why not examine the evidence that's out there for yourself, if you've never done that? But I'm sure many of us here this afternoon do believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so can I say, there is reason for hope, even as we grieve when Christians die. We have to be honest, we have a bit of a love-hate relationship with hope, don't we? We know hope is crucial to our experience as humans. We need it to live, it's like fuel in our car. Without hope, we wither, we don't go anywhere. And yet all too often we put our hopes in the wrong thing. Hopes that don't last. We put our hopes in things that can't bear that weight and they let us down and those hopes are crushed and dashed. It was well expressed in the film, uh, 1917. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a brilliant film of uh, courage and sacrifice and duty set against the background of the brutal events of the First World War. And towards the end of the film, um, uh, this character, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, um, says very (laughs) moving and profound words, hope is a dangerous thing. It kind of feels that way, doesn't it? That it's dangerous because we know hope is so foundational to us as humans and yet often so fleeting and elusive. Fragile. Ephemeral. Gone. Friends, here we have a firm basis for genuine hope today. Jesus is risen. See, death doesn't have the final word. So when we experience the death of Christian friends and family, please take hope. Jesus is alive. And he promises life to all who love him too. And he's proved that that is true by his own death-crushing resurrection. We grieve with hope when Christians die because Jesus is risen. And we can today grieve with hope because Jesus is returning. So do you believe, verse 16... The Lord himself will come down from heaven one day. 
That's where human history is heading. The great day when our Lord splits the heavens and returns in visible, public, unmissable glory. It is easy to lose heart and hope with this, isn't it? And yet we must hold firmly to this belief. It's not wishful thinking. It is, as Paul says, a matter of the Lord's own word. It's his promise that he's coming. And on that day, Jesus will bring with him Christians who've died. They will rise first. And together with them, we will be with the Lord forever. And I pray in some small way, these words might particularly encourage those of us who've known the loss of loved Christians over recent months. But actually, we can all take these things to heart. And as Paul says, encourage one another with these words. So very practically, who do you know in this church who might need to be encouraged by these words? Maybe drop them a note to remind them of them. Maybe take them out for a coffee and reflect on these truths together with that person. Maybe just pick up a phone and share them with them. Here's the first lesson to help us face death and live life. We grieve with hope when Christians die because Jesus is returning and risen. Second, and a little bit quicker. Second lesson about facing death and living life today. We have been appointed to receive final salvation when Jesus returns. That's the second lesson to help us face death and live life. We have been appointed to receive final salvation when Jesus returns. Paul's teaching in chapter 5 reaches this wonderful crescendo, verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. Here it is. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to the, the fate of those who are unprepared, who are unaware that Jesus is coming back, who will face destruction on that day, as Paul speaks of that in the first three verses of chapter 5, verses we haven't really got time to press into now, but come and speak to me afterwards if you'd like to. I'd love to share them with you. Paul is confident for better things for his readers, for us. And what he is confident of is that the future holds not wrath for us, for Christians, not destruction, not eternal ruin when Jesus returns, but full, final salvation. That's what he says, verse 9. We've been appointed for this, Paul says. And this final salvation is grounded on Christ's death. Paul says he died for us. To win us that salvation, to secure it for us, to bring us forgiveness and life. And this salvation will embrace all believers, whether alive or asleep, whether awake um, uh, or asleep, whether alive or dead, when uh, Jesus returns, verse 10. That is our destiny as Christians. This is where our story ends. This is what we're to lift our heads and look forward to. In God's grace and because of Jesus' death, we don't need to fear wrath on that last day. We don't need to fear Jesus' return because Paul says we've been appointed to receive Final salvation. And for Paul, this truth is meant to help us live life until that day dawns. These verses speak to us of a new identity. Because actually for Paul, that salvation we're looking forward to finally experiencing then has already been started and begun now. It's a bit like we're enjoying the starter of a main meal and looking forward to the main course to come. It's that kind of idea. Or if you want to put it another way, in the kind of thinking of the Bible, we have been saved in the past, we are being saved in the present, and we will be saved in the future. 
Listen to how Paul describes it. Verse 4, here's what he says about us as believers. He says, you, verse 4, are not in darkness. Something has happened to you deep down profoundly that you are not in darkness. Or verse 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, Paul says. You see, that salvation's already begun. We've been deeply and, trans- uh, and wonderfully transformed through our faith in Jesus. We're not who and what we once were. We did once belong to the darkness, Paul says. We were marked by rebellion against God, ignorance of him, profound hostility to him, helplessness and hopelessness outside his grace, tied to this falling, uh, this fallen age that is passing away. But no longer. We've been delivered from that state. We're now joined to Jesus by faith. We've been brought into God's wonderful light, Paul says. It's a bit like we've changed cosmic teams, like the most outrageous transfer in the history of eternity, even more than outrageous than Mo Salah going and transferring and playing for Everton. It's like some just profoundly mind-expanding transfer has happened. Or if you want another picture, it's like we're welcomed into a new family with, with all the joy and, 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 and blessings that brings. Or it's like we're citizens of a different country. We've kind of emigrated profoundly. So those kind of ideas are all bound up here, Paul says. We're united to Jesus by faith. And because he's died and risen, we're caught up into that life as well. We're brought into that life of the new creation ahead of time. We're already now tied to Jesus, defined by him, and longing for his return with joy and gladness. That's who we are now, Paul says. We have a new identity to help us live life until Jesus comes. And we have a new purpose to help us live life until Jesus comes. See, he says, as children of the light, children of the day, Paul unpacks that that's meant to be Help, uh, we're to be marked by attitudes and behaviours that fit with that new reality, that make sense of it. Look at verse 7. We're not to be like others, Paul says. Rather, we are to be awake and sober. So it's a word picture. People around us, Paul says, might be asleep or drunk, marked by life in the darkness, ignorance and hostility to God. But we are to be awake, Paul says, tuned in, Switched on, clearly focused in our hearts and minds that Jesus is coming one day. That this world will not carry on in the same way. But one day Christ will come and wrap all things up and make all things new. We're to be awake, aware of that reality. And Paul says we're to be sober, thinking and living in a God-pleasing way until that day. As he puts it at the beginning of chapter 4, committed to living to please God more and more. Chapter 4 verse 1. Committed to avoiding sexual immorality, chapter 4, verse 3. We thought about that last week. Committed to ensuring that our lives win the respect of outsiders, chapter 4, verse 12. Being sober, Paul says, in light of what is to come. And ultimately, as we live until Jesus comes back, growing in faith, hope, and love, Paul says, verse 8. Those things are to be like a shield of armour to keep us safe. As we lift our heads and look forward, growing in faith and hope and love. Because, verse 9, as we said, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we remember, Paul says, verse 11, we are to encourage one another with these things. And friends, 
I need you to do that for me. And you need me to do that for you. Let's just call that and be honest about that. There are times when we need people to talk to us to help us stay awake. You've been on those late night car journeys home when you're tired and your eyes are just getting a little bit kind of heavy. In those moments, I need Eve to keep talking to me to help me stay awake. She needs to keep talking, otherwise I will fall asleep and ruin will result. It's exactly the same here. I need you to keep talking to me of these things, otherwise I will fall asleep because I am slow to learn. And you need me to keep talking to you about these things or you will fall asleep because you're slow to learn these things as well because we're in this together. So will you do that for me? Because I need you. And pray that I'll do that for you too, because you need it as well. So let's go for this. Here's the second lesson to help us face death and live life. We've been appointed to receive final salvation when Jesus comes. What was it that helped Gladys' family sing in the face of death at her Thanksgiving service? They knew how to face death. And they knew how to live life. They knew that we grieve with hope when Christians die because Jesus is risen and returning. They knew we've been appointed to receive final salvation when Jesus comes. And so they could live confidently, hopefully, even as they face death. And all the lessons that they learned, all the lessons that we need to learn today, hang on the fact that Jesus is alive and that Jesus is returning. If he's not coming back, none of this makes sense. But if he is coming back, we can hope, we can live, even as we grieve. So will Jesus return? That's the question. Yes. I hope you believe that. I hope you're excited about that and looking forward to that. And if you are, keep sharing these truths with others so that we can encourage one another and build each other up until the day dawns, until Jesus comes and we gather to meet him forever. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, thank you for the amazing future and hope you give us. Thank you that the one we've staked our lives on is not dead and mouldy in a grave in Palestine. But we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Thank you that he has crushed death, breaking its power, guaranteeing its final defeat on the last day. Father, it is painful and we contend with that enemy until he comes. We don't minimise the grief and the pain of loss and broken relationships in any way. But help us please to grieve with hope. Because Jesus is risen. Help us to grieve with hope because Jesus is returning. Lift our hearts And our eyes and our vision forward we pray that we too would believe that you will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And all the wonderful things that these verses speak of that will unfold then. May we encourage one another with these things. And until that day dawns, until that final salvation is ours. As we live confidently that in Christ we are destined not for wrath but for salvation. Help us please to grasp by faith our new identity understanding the profound change that you've already begun in us through faith in Christ and putting that change to work by being awake and sober 
Father, I need my friends here to keep talking to me, otherwise I'm going to fall asleep. Would they minister to me out of your grace? And would you help me to minister to them out of your grace too? That together, as KCC, we would encourage each other and build each other up. Because these truths are profound and beautiful and far weightier than we could ever fully grasp now. Please press them home to us for our joy and for our shared joy together, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.